What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Let me tell you about today's show. Uh, this is my last uh, Bulwark Podcast, but we're going to go out the way we came in. Uh, we're going to be joined by David French from the New York Times, longtime friend of the podcast, to talk about the Supreme Court decision yesterday. But I wanted to start off by kind of bookending the podcast, because I remember a cold, dark day in December 2018, when Bill Crystal and I sat down and did the very first Bulwark podcast. In fact, we did the Bulwark podcast before it was the Bulwark podcast. This is the way it sounded. Good morning. I'm Charlie Sykes, and welcome to what is eventually going to be the Bulwark podcast. And we're going to be launching it after the holidays. But Bill Crystal and I thought that, well, we have some things to talk about today. So here's a special pre-Christmas edition. You can sort of think of it as a sample. So, Bill, here we are. Good to be here with you, Charlie, and I'm looking forward to when we pick up after the, after the, in the new year, doing this regularly. Yeah, well, we, we figured it's the winter solstice. What else are we going to do? It's the, you know, it's darkest, the, it's the darkest, it's the darkest day of the year. How appropriate is, is that? How appropriate is it that it's still kind of one of the darkest days of the year? Bill, welcome back on the podcast. My first Bulwark podcast, my last Bulwark podcast with you. It's great to be with you and an honor to be both on the first and the last. It was, just so people understand, that was the Monday, I believe, December 21st. The Weekly Standard had been uh, murdered on the Friday before you had come to town for that event. We I had know. the whole staff meeting there. And, and then we just thought, you know what? The bulwark had been, we'd started a couple months before in a very bare bones skeleton thing. We thought, you know what? Let's see if, we, if mm-hmm. there is a market for contrary, as you called yourself at the time, a contrarian conservative, a never-Trump, ex-Republican kind of, Republican or ex-Republican type of enterprise. But we were very uncertain, weren't we, that this thing would actually go anywhere. We did it because we were sitting there in Sarah Longwell's conference room. We thought, well, why not, right? We have Mm -hmm. uh, audio equipment to do a a bare-bones podcast. But it's really amazing what you've done over the last, uh, God, how long is it? Five-plus years? I mean... And, you know, and you think about what the bulwark has become, you know, I, you and I were sitting there, it was just a few days after the murder of the Weekly right. Standard, and it was still kind of stunning that that had happened. And originally, it was like, hey, you know, how do you keep the band together? And right. so I think the original plan was maybe, you know, hang on for for three months, you know, Sarah was trying to pull together the money. And here we are in 2024. So uh, it has been a wild and very, very interesting ride, Bill. It has been, you know, and there we were in 2019, or the end of 2018, 
Looked like Trump was in charge of the Republican Party. Looked like he'd be the nominee again. Looked like the Republicans on the Hill were going south. Looked like the country was being increasingly deluged with authoritarian, you know, BS and having its institutions undermined right and left. And things have really changed a lot in the last five plus years, right, Charlie? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, really. that's the funny thing. I was listening to, to more of it and we were talking about, you know, the fire hose of news and all the things that were going on that particular week and why we, why you and I had to do kind of an emergency early podcast. And it's like, okay, fast forward five years, six years. And it, you know, every week, has been that way. So by the way, I just want people to know that starting Monday, Morning Shots is going to be taken over by you. And Andrew Eger, who was also one of the original Bulwark guys, has been working at the dispatch, coming back home to the Bulwark. So so congratulations on having to get up at five o'clock every morning, Bill, and turning out a newsletter. I'm looking forward to doing it at least for this year. <laughs> and, and I'm looking forward to Andrew doing the bulk of the work that you did. It's the two of us together will we'll hopefully be able to somewhat make up for your, compared to what you did individually. I mean, both the assembling of all the links that were so useful and so, uh, you know, uh, important to be able to see every morning plus the actual, you know, interesting, perceptive, witty commentary on it. So we will do our best together to fill your shoes. I think it's going to be well worth it. And so people, uh, make sure you watch your your inbox on Monday morning for Bill and Andrew. And I have to say that looking back on the five years or so that, you know, I've been doing the daily stuff, I don't think there was a single morning when I got up and I thought, geez, there's nothing to write about today. I mean, there isn't, and certainly that's not going to be the case in 2024. And of course, uh, on Monday, this podcast uh, will continue, of course, and Tim Miller will be taking over as as the host of that. So, so make sure that you listen in. I'm sure that Tim's going to do a, a great job. But since I have you here, Bill, would you like to do a little bit of uh, rank punditry? It's what we do, Charlie. You know, that's like asking, uh, I don't know, what, what's, what's the right metaphor for this? Asking a gorilla if you like a banana or something, right? You know? Well, that wouldn't be the analogy that I was going to go for, but okay. <laughs> so, you know, there's been so much that's happened this week. Actually, you know, Friday podcasts are always interesting to do because you go, Did, was that this week? It seems so long ago. I mean, when you had the Mayorkas uh, impeachment, you know, earlier right. in the week, the uh, D.C. Court of Appeals comes down with this immunity ruling. Then you have this gigantic uh, argument in front of the U.S. Supreme Court about the 14th Amendment. And here we are on Friday and... All of that has happened. And then we also had that special counsel report. So I want to ask you about that because it's one of those things that, you know, people may not want to talk about it, but it's out there. This special counsel named her, a Republican, a Trump appointee, decides he's not going to charge Joe Biden with any crime for having the, the documents. But that's not what people are really talking about. They're talking about the language in that report that calls into question, you know, whether Joe Biden is there and he's got a memory. And I think the Biden White House gets how potentially damaging this is because Biden was, he was pissed. He comes out last night, has a press conference, and here's a little bit of, of his reaction to this. The special counsel acknowledged I cooperated completely. I did not throw up any roadblocks. I sought no delays. In fact, I was so determined to give the special counsel what he needed, I went forward with a five-hour in-person, five-hour in-person interview over two days on October the 8th and 9th of last year, even though Israel had just been attacked by Hamas on the 7th, and I was very occupied. It was in the middle of handling an international crisis. I was especially pleased to see special counsel make clear the stark distinction and difference between this case and Mr. Trump's case. The special counsel wrote, and I quote, 
Several material distinctions between Mr. Trump's case and Mr. Biden's are clear, continuing to quote, most notably, after giving multiple chances to return classified documents to avoid prosecution, Mr. Trump allegedly did the opposite. According to the indictment, he not only refused to return the documents for many months, he also obstructed justice by enlisting others to destroy evidence and then to lie about it. In contrast, we went on to say Mr. Biden turned in classified documents to the National Archives and the Department of Justice, consented to the search of multiple locations, including his home, sat for a voluntary interview, and in other ways cooperated with the investigation, end of quote. Okay, but here's the part where he's clearly ticked off, because having gone through all of that, then he has to address the, the language about him being a little shaky in his memory. In addition, I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. All right, Bill, what's your take? How much damage has this done to Joe Biden and how is he, and how is he handling it? I mean, I would say that, first of all, I, I've been concerned about this for quite a while. You have too, I think, though maybe I was even more on the mm-hmm. extreme side yeah. of concern and James Carville and others uh, have really worried about this, that he is old. The individual lapses of memory, I don't think are decisive. You know, you can get a country's name wrong or we all make, uh, those, those are really slip-ups, I would say. They're not affecting mm-hmm. governing. They're not even affecting communications that much. He corrects them typically pretty quickly. Mm. It's more that he's 81. He'll be 82 if reelected. He'll be, that would imply he's president until he's 86. As James Carville put it, you don't, you don't get better in those years. You, you might, hopefully you stabilize and you're just fine. But, you know, that's, that's a hope. I saw a clip of him in 2021, early in his presidency the other day. He, he was pretty different, I gotta say. Just That doesn't mean that he's not capable of being a perfectly good president. It's just he was different. There's clear aging. And there's going to be aging. I mean, that's the trouble with it, right? And I think people, yeah. and that's why the polls showed that what two-thirds of Americans, maybe 70%, and a majority of Democrats a year ago did not want him to, to run for re-election and thought he could well be too old for a second term. So for me, that's really the key Special counsel's report obviously has brought it back to the to the forefront. I think we'll have a little bit of silly debate about you know memory for a day or two, and then mm. then it still is what it is. And I I was always on the side of let's have a vigorous let's have a one term successful presidency. He did what he did, transitional figure. I have a lively primary, probably would turn out okay. I think and have a next generation Democratic candidate. I suppose it's too late for that, though. I don't know. You could imagine triggering primaries and writing candidates, but. I, I remain very worried about it, just as a matter of electability and secondarily as a matter of what an actual second term yeah. would look like in terms of his governance. And thirdly, the fact that his vice president is not, you know, just fairly or unfairly, isn't terribly well thought of or terribly popular. People don't have great confidence. I mean, yeah, 1984, you and I are only to remember this, you know, he, he had some real problems. He kind of lost track of things in that one debate. Remember that? And, and, and stuff. He was a young but, pup back then, though. A, he was 73, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So eight years younger than Biden. And B, yeah. George H.W. Bush was vice president. And people didn't love Bush at the time. And he was, you know, yeah. but you know what? No one was worried, right? Bush, George Schultz, Jim Baker, you know, if Reagan failed a little bit, they were there. And so it would be fine. I don't feel like the Biden team, people don't have that kind of confidence. So it, it more rests on him. And, and he is 81 years old. 
Well, and the language that, that was used in this, and again, there's a lot of controversy about whether or not the special counsel gratuitously threw it in, you know, was it necessary, to, you know, to write, Mr. Biden's memory was significantly limited, limited precision and recall, that Biden would likely present himself to a jury as he did during our interview of him as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. And then he goes on, in his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended, if it was 2013, when did I stop being vice president, forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began. He did not remember even within several years when his son, Bo died. Probably unnecessary, but you know the damage is, is real, and, and you have that sense, and I guess... If, you know, if anybody thought that this was not going to be front and center, just look at the way this has become a major talking point on the right. Well, and your point about the, the sudden remarks by the president in press conference at 745, mm. whatever it was last night, they, they don't do that very often. They haven't done it very often. I don't think he's had a press conference of that sort in four right. or five months, maybe. So that shows the White House was really alarmed. Yes, I mean, they exactly. could easily have taken the view, maybe they should have, that, okay, look, it's a hit, it's a, it's a print story, if I can use an old-fashioned term. There's no audio or video on it. There's a report from her, He, you know, and we're just going to say this is gratuitous and, and inaccurate and roll out six people who've been in meetings with Biden recently and say he's totally fine, and that's that. Instead, they were worried enough, or he was personally maybe worried and angry enough, he insisted on doing this thing that I think was not wise. I mean, he didn't look great. Leave aside the slip-up about <laughs> Egypt and Mexico. And it just is, it elevates it. I mean, how can you not cover the neck? It's, it's Biden supporters say, well, why is the press obsessing about this? The president of the United States had a specially called announcement at a press conference at 7.45 p.m. on a week, you know, on Thursday night. You can't really blame the media for spending the next day talking about it. Well, and on the, the headlines are, you know, Biden angrily responds. Well, I'm going to be very interested in following all of your takes, as I have been for many, many years now. Uh, congratulations to you and to uh, Andrew. I've tried to keep the chair warm for you and for Tim on the podcast. And uh, it has been a great run, Bill. And, you know, um, we're still going to be in the fight together. So I appreciate it all. Totally. And, and congratulations to you. And we will be in the fight. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks here for that conference. You're on that panel. At the Absolutely. I will. I will see you then. Principles first. Principles first. So we're both, Principles first. Right, so that's a, so, yeah. So that's a good group. And that's a little bit of an offspring, you might say, of what we were trying to do, too. So very much feel so. like good about the fact that we have the bulwark, but also other institutions that have grown up in this space. And so gives us a little bit of hope occasionally for the for the country, right? All right. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for joining me again on the podcast, my first and my last. Thanks, Charlie. Coming up, David French from the New York Times. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 
Well, because this is my last Bulwark podcast as the host, we want to end on a high note. And how much higher can we get than going to our good friend, David French, New York Times columnist, longtime friend of the podcast. David, good to talk with you today. Charlie, I cannot tell you how honored I am that I'm your last guest. I'm seriously touched, Charlie. I'm serious. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. Well, we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot of ground to cover today. I was just talking to Bill about uh, the whole Joe Biden special counsel age thing, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But first, let's just talk a little bit about what happened in the in the Supreme Court yesterday. Rather extraordinary hearing. I know that you have been arguing that, in fact, the 14th Amendment should be used to disqualify Donald Trump from running, but it seemed pretty obvious. I think the consensus is that that is not going to be the decision of the court. In fact, the court might actually rule unanimously against the disqualification or maybe 8-1. So I'm interested to get your take on this. So the way the court is handling it and the decision that uh, seems inevitable now. I think it's going to be a grave mistake, Charlie. I'm not going to sit here and be one of these folks who says, well, the Supreme Court's illegitimate or it's not operating in good faith or anything like that. Courts make decisions that I disagree with all the time. Mm -hmm. But I disagree with this, and I think it's a very profound mistake. Mm -hmm. And honestly, Charlie, I think I'm going to write this when the actual opinion comes down, if it comes down as we expect. It could be a mistake more consequential in some ways than the failure to convict Trump after January 6th. Hmm. And the reason is that the actual effect of the decision will be very much the same as the effect of acquitting him from the impeachment charge, which the effect will be to allow him to be president again. So it's a very similar effect in one sense, but here's the way it would be worse. It would set a legal precedent that undermines the force and effect of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment going forward. So an impeachment decision doesn't have precedential effect in the way a court decision has. Impeachment's a political process. They can choose to follow precedent or not follow precedent. Right. And sure, the Supreme Court obviously has demonstrated that it will reject precedent, but it also tends to follow it. That's the general tendency of the Supreme Court is it tends to follow it. And certainly the lower courts are bound to follow it. And so my real concern is that the Supreme Court is going to issue a decision here that doesn't just grant Trump access to the presidency again, but also creates a precedent undermining Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which I think of as a sort of a fundamental basic safeguard <laughs> that any nation should uh, uphold against, you know, insurrectionists and those who would attack its own system violently. So uh, I'm very concerned about it. Okay, but it obviously matters greatly, you know, what the grounds the court uses to keep Trump right. on the ballot. I could certainly imagine very, very narrow grounds that they could do that would not create a really negative precedent. What do you think? Here's the trouble, Charlie. On the grounds that I think they're going to go, it's not that narrow. So I think essentially what you were looking at and what you were seeing broadcast in the actual oral argument was they were leaning towards some sort of rule that is essentially saying the states just can't do this, that there's going to have to be some sort of congressional action and that would essentially eviscerate the amendment. Right. Because if you're going to say you need to have some congressional action to make this amendment enforceable, and there's no congressional action making the amendment enforceable, then does the amendment 
is it a dead letter in many ways? And then here's the other thing, Charlie, that I have not seen people focus in on because one of the key arguments here was only Congress can do this, that this is not something that the Secretary of State can do. Well, when does Congress have an opportunity other than passing legislation to weigh in on qualifications for the presidency at events like January 6th? So is this empowering in a weird way with this decision? And again, it's speculation based on the oral argument. That is always dangerous. But if you go the direction the oral arguments seem to be going, the argument would be, well, this is all Congress, which renders it a dead letter in the absence of legislation or Congress sitting to judge qualifications. And when does it do that? (laughs) When it's counting electoral college votes. And so there has been electoral college act reform, but qualifications for the presidency are still qualifications for the presidency. And so, Charlie, I am very concerned that what we're going to deal with here is a decision that would feel stabilizing in the moment to a lot of people, but could be ultimately more destabilizing. Well, and as you pointed out, nobody at the court even disputed that Trump was an insurrectionist. So we're not going to see a court decision that says, yes, the 14th Amendment applies, but it doesn't apply to Donald Trump because he is not an insurrectionist. That was not really at issue at all in the arguments yesterday. No, not really at all in the arguments. And that was quite telling, in fact, because going into the arguments, I I was asked about this by a number of folks, and I said, you're going to know where they're leaning based on the subject of the questions. If they're really leaning in on, did he engage in an insurrection or did he provide aid or comfort to enemies of the Constitution? If they're really leaning in on that, that means they're really leaning on, hey, maybe this guy needs to be disqualified. If they're leaning in on why did Colorado do this yeah, or what kind of due process should occur before this happens, then they're really looking at a way out of this that is related to process without adjudicating the substance. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so there's so much stuff that's been going on this week in Congress. We had a vote yesterday in the Senate where they finally voted aid to Ukraine. We don't know what's going to happen in the House one of those, you know, glass half full things. You know, some people are saying, well, 17 Republicans joined with Democrats in voting for y- Ukraine. My reaction, I don't know what yours was, was like, only 17. This is what the Republican Party has become. <laughs> and when I come back to that, I thought it was just extraordinary that you had Tucker Carlson in Moscow interviewing Vladimir Putin yesterday, this sort of, you know, kiss fest. We have a little bit of soundbite for this. I don't know how much you of it you caught. I mean, it, it's not riveting television. I mean, trust me <laughs> on all of this, you know, especially watching Vladimir Putin just roll over and talk over Tucker and Tucker taking it. I mean, it was, yeah, it was a, a self-owned for the ages, but uh, here's just a little clip of Tucker Carl. With the backing of CIA, of course, the organization you wanted to join back in the day, as I understand. We should thank God they didn't let you in. Although, it is a serious organization. I understand. Okay, so... Wow. It went like that a lot. So, here's a a video clip on what used to be known as Twitter by Ron uh, Filipkowski. He says, this is a hilarious shit show. Putin is now 28 minutes into his history lesson. This is the third time Tucker tries to interrupt. And Putin mocks Tucker for just being an entertainer and not a serious journalist. Tucker tries to fake laugh it off while Putin emasculates him. Chef's kiss. Just yeah. a great moment. 
Yeah. Putin is exerting dominance here. Putin's exerting dominance over Tucker Carlson. And the thing is, Charlie, it won't ma- really matter the Tuckerites. It just won't matter. No. I mean, look, no. if if advancing testicle tanning did not undermine this guy's standing with his core fans, right. then a little light humiliation by Vladimir Putin isn't going to do the trick. <laughs> Okay, but it raises the larger question, though, and you wrote about this, why why MAGA loves Russia and hates Ukraine? You know, we've seen it develop in real time. You know, for some of us with a little bit of historical perspective, it is still stunning and amazing. So give me your take. Why has the right decided they love Vladimir Putin and hate Vladimir Zelensky and Ukraine? What is this about, David? Help me get my head there. This is a fascinating issue. So let me just take one segment of people and put them to one side. There is a segment of people who are what you would call traditional paleoconservatives on the right who they don't like foreign aid. They don't like foreign military entanglements. I'm not talking about those guys. Those guys have had an argument about foreign policy in America for a long time. What I'm talking about is the pop culture right, the pop culture right that has this entertainment wing. Yeah. Yes, that has this visceral reaction against Ukraine. You know, uh, Candace Owens saying she wants to punch him. I mean, people saying he dresses like, was it Tucker Carlson who said dresses like a strip club manager or Donald Trump Jr. hurling these vicious personal insults? Where does that come from? Where does all of that angst and anger? Good question. And when you dive into the MAGA lore here, Charlie. It's sort of like, you know, there's the Marvel extended universe and the DC extended universe. Well, there's a MAGA extended universe. And when you dive into the MAGA extended universe, you realize there are people on the right who live in an upside down reality. And in this upside down reality, they believe that Ukraine interfered in the 2016 election and sort of engineered the whole thing to blame it on Russia. So remember, first impeachment, Donald Trump talked about this CrowdStrike server that he was looking for. I remember this. It's a batshit crazy conspiracy theory. I mean, this is in the category of the Italian space satellites changing votes. And I remember that. You're saying that the tale of that has gotten us where we are today? It's one piece of it. Oh, man. It's one piece of it. So mm-hmm. the tale of it is that's the hostility to towards Ukraine. And then at the same time, going all the way back until years before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there were a number of people on the right who said, essentially, Putin is the Christian leader against secular wokeness in the West. And there's all kinds of commentary out there like that, or that even if hey, I don't love Vladimir Putin, but he's making the right case against the West. After the invasion, even after the brutality, you know, Jordan Peterson was talking about, is the culture war in the West so threatening to Vladimir Putin that he would think he would need to invade a neighboring country to keep it at bay? So Vladimir Putin as defender of Christian civilization against the woke West. And then you lay on top of that, Charlie, Mm -hmm. this whole weird masculinity thing on the right. And I don't know if you remember this, but right before the invasion, you had people on the right, including Ted Cruz, sharing these videos. Oh, I do. Yeah. Online about, look at this Russian military recruitment ad versus this American military recruitment ad. We're woke and emasculated. Look how tough they are. And so they had this narrative that the toughness of Russia was clearly superior to the weakness of the West. And then Russia invades and it stopped 
cold, just stopped cold. And the, quote, weak, woke West actually turns out to have a lot of courage and resolve. And so it disrupts this whole narrative about the West that was emerging on the right. So you have Ukraine as a villain. Vladimir Putin is a, in some ways, admirable figure taking on the weak, woke West. And then the whole war not going according to the script that they'd laid out in their mind. And all of that adds together to this really visceral anti-Ukraine stance that, as I wrote in my piece, it's not that Ronald Reagan is turning over in his grave. The man's probably trying to lurch out of his tomb and come after the GOP saying, what are you doing? Well, this is also this pattern that we've been dis- discussing, you know, at, at some length where, you know, initially after the invasion, the pro-Russian faction was relatively small in the Republican Party, and it looked like maybe the center would hold. And as we see as we're speaking today, it looks like that there's a real possibility that this country could abandon Ukraine because of Republican elected officials. It's remarkable. Who are just not saying the way it has in- infected. So, you know, looking back on this, and again, we don't have, I'm asking you to speculate a little bit because, you know, from the very beginning, there's been this question, what is going on between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin? You know, on the right, it's the Russia hoax, you know, like nothing to see here. And yet, you know, Donald Trump is not, you know, reluctant to rip and criticize domestic enemies. I struggle to come up with any time when he has said anything critical of Vladimir Putin and his admiration for Putin, his unwillingness to cross Putin is extraordinary and consistent. So looking back on all of this, what is the meta take? What is the Trump-Putin thing about? And where does it come from? Well, I think a couple of things. One, Trump obviously admires strongmen. Yeah. It's not just Putin. It's Xi. I mean, he repeatedly praises, you know, Chinese leader, North Korean leader, Russian leader, like all of Mm -hmm. these authoritarian strongmen. He consistently expresses admiration. And I think he sees himself in them in some ways or the what he could be if he were not so constrained. What he wants to be. Right. Now, the other factor here, Charlie, and this is what's really dark. So that's dark enough, like having a past president of the United States and potential future president who actually admires authoritarian <laughs> dictators is dark. dark. Yeah. But let's get dark. darker, okay? <laughs> Charlie, I can always go darker in this era, but the, <laughs> the darker thing is, you've heard the old phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so traditionally in the US, how that has manifested itself is that We may have a lot of domestic differences, but we will unite against a foreign foe. Right. Now, we might disagree about how to fight the foreign foe, but we agree it's a foreign foe, right? And so we can and have demonstrated repeatedly in the past that we'll put aside differences domestically to take on the international threat. Trump's and MAGA's enemy of my enemy is my friend analysis is different. They will set aside foreign differences to take on the domestic foe. Right. So go back to the admiration for Vladimir Putin. That admiration for Vladimir Putin, because he was taking on their domestic political opponents, right? And so there is an admiration for Putin because he was taking on the shared enemy as they see it, which is the left, the Republican establishment, et cetera. And that's why I say this is really dark. The toxic polarization that MAGA feels towards fellow Americans is so great 
that some of them will wrap their arms around a Russian dictator and endorse his critiques of American society to advance their own domestic agenda. You know, a lot of the stuff that we talk about is performative, but this is really substantive. You know, as, as you wrote, you note that America has made catastrophic foreign policy mistakes in the past, but never in our lifetime have we been on the verge of a mistake so profound and catastrophic that was the direct result of theories and ideas that were so shallow, stupid, and frankly, bizarre? The thing is, it is the alignment of the stupid, the crazy, and the catastrophic all at once. Yeah. And we can't escape that reality. It's not like we can change the channel and, you know, just not pay attention because the consequences of a Russian victory in Ukraine because of American Republican betrayal of Ukraine is very, very hard to to quantify. Yeah. In, in some ways, Charlie, a defeat of Ukraine now, in some ways, would be worse than a defeat of Ukraine in the initial attack. Yeah. Because oh, even, yeah. In, even in the initial attack, even supporters of Ukraine were shocked at the tenacity of Ukrainian resistance. Because there was a lot of hype about the Russian military before the invasion. And it wasn't just amongst MAGA. A lot of thoughtful observers of the Russian military thought it had really modernized and and become a far more professional force. And yeah, it had compared to previous years, but it wasn't as competent and professional as a lot of international observers thought. So if there had been an initial invasion that had gone the way international observers had thought it would go, it would have been a catastrophe. No question about it. It would have been a catastrophe, but it wouldn't have been a catastrophe of the West more broadly. It would have been a catastrophe for Ukraine, but it wouldn't have demonstrated a failure of will in the West. Here, if Russia is able to impose upon Ukraine a favorable settlement to the war, it will have been the result not of a catastrophic failure amongst Russia's real enemy, the West, the West, not mm. Ukraine. So Ukraine would have fought courageously and would have given its all, and we would have abandoned them. And that, from a geopolitical standpoint, is far worse. So Putin would both accomplish subjugating Ukraine and accomplish the complete undermining of American credibility in national security, totally undermined it. And that's a worse outcome than him succeeding in that initial blitzkrieg, although it obviously will come at a very, very, very high cost to Russia. But Putin doesn't care about his people's lives. Well, that's why 2024 feels like it is going to be a pivotal year in American political history, but also in world history. You don't always know at the beginning yeah. of the year that something's going to be pivotal. You're a student of history. I keep trying to come up with the analogy that And again, there's a cliche, this is the most important election of our lifetime. But I'm trying to imagine, historically, in terms of its significance, the 2024 election is the most fraught since when? What year would you go back to? (laughs) That is a... If any. uh, That's a great question. I mean, if you look back at history, at the super consequential American elections, this is going to be up there. I mean, obviously, 18... 60 uh, with Lincoln. That's the one I was going to come up with, yeah. Enormously consequential. I also think people sleep on the consequences of the election of 1876 and the conflict that played out over who was going to win that because the consequence 
of that election was the Compromise of 1877, which abandoned the South to Jim Crow and segregation. That was hugely consequential for a century, a century long abandonment Mm. of black Americans, hugely consequential. I would say it's in that ballpark. And the reason why I say that is after what we saw on January 6th, I have never said these words before, Charlie, but I am not 100% certain that if Donald Trump wins the presidency, that the United States will survive as an intact nation. I think 99%, 99.9. I don't want to be like some doomsayer who says America will fade or collapse or whatever if Trump is elected. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is he is so volatile that he raises risks that we have not seen in American politics. And how do we know that? Because we have a memory, Charlie, of what we just saw. I mean, this is a man who triggered the storming of the United States Capitol. And so this idea that he's well, no, he's stable enough to rein himself in when it really matters. That's shot. That's gone. That's no, there's no argument for that anymore. And there's, there's no argument for the fact that, well, the Republican grownups will, you know, they'll be the guardrails on him because I think we've, we've gotten an answer on that. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Okay, so I talked about this with Bill. Um, Given the stakes in the 2024 election, we have to talk about it. I know a lot of our listeners really hate talking about the the Biden age issue. Oh, boy. But look, guys, um, you know, this is the wrinkly gray elephant in the room here. So give me your take on on what we saw play out yesterday. Uh, We had the special counsel report, which said no criminal charges against uh, Joe Biden because of the the document, made a very clear distinction between the way Biden handled the documents and Trump and all of that. But what everybody's talking about, everybody's focusing on is this, I suppose you could argue, somewhat gratuitous uh, commentary about Joe Biden's memory and his age. And of course, it's placed Joe Biden's memory and his age front and center in the campaign. Joe Biden goes out angrily, very angry last night. So give me your take. How bad is this? What should we make of this, David? Where do you come down? I, I heard, we, don't, we know where Bill came down. Where do you come down? It's bad. It's bad. Now, <laughs> it's not, is Trump better than Biden bad? Biden is no. clearly better than Trump, clearly. But it is bad in the sense of, can he serve capably for the next four years bad? Which is bad. That's a serious question, Charlie. And here's the thing that gets me. Don't blame the special counsel for this. Look, this is where partisanship leads us. The special counsel was evaluating a crime that one of the elements of the crime is willfulness or intent. 
the state of mind is relevant to the legal analysis. Mm -hmm. And one reason why he felt like he would not charge Joe Biden was the state of mind. And you have to explain that to people. Now, if this was something that had come out of nowhere, where Biden is sharp and quick and quick-witted, and then you have this, and then he comes out and he gives a press conference where he's on top of his game, you would think, what's the special counsel doing, right? But this comes on the heels of in the last week, he'd confused two European leaders for their deceased predecessors. And then he comes out very, very angry about the report and then confuses the president Mm -hmm. of Egypt and the president of Mexico. And I know there are legions of listeners who are saying, but Donald Trump confused Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, right. Yes, he is corrupt and he is confused. No question. But the question you have here is that a lot of Americans, especially those people who don't pay really close attention to politics, you can't yell at them so much that they'll forget about things like age. Because you know why? They all have experience with it, whether they're aging themselves or their parents or their grandparents. And here's one thing that every American knows. It doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. It's not like at 83 you're better than you are at 81. So there's two questions and they're obviously related. Number one is, you know, can he serve for another four years as president? More immediate question is how much political damage has this caused to him? I mean, if Donald Trump is elected president of the United States in November, are we going to look back on this week and say this was kind of the decisive, not turning point, but an inflection point where people just decided you know, that now you have this special counsel who's underlining these you know, pre-existing concerns. I mean, how badly hurt is Joe Biden? And is there anything that anyone can do about it? I mean, it doesn't seem like Democrats are in the mood to, like, move on. I mean, it's going to be Biden. It's going to be Biden and Trump. Yeah. I think our former uh, colleague uh, Steve Hayes said it's going to be the 25th Amendment election. It's going to be Trump versus Biden. And it's going to be, no, your guy's more senile. No, your guy's decompensating. No, it's your guy. Yeah. I prefer senility over psychosis. I mean, what, we're <laughs> stuck with it, right? <laughs> you know? I mean, we probably are stuck with it because it all depends on Joe Biden. Joe Biden has to decide that he's going to step aside and nobody can make him step aside. Nobody's going to trigger the 25th Amendment. There's not grounds for triggering the 25th Amendment. Yeah. And so he has to decide. And Charlie, here's the other thing. We all know what it is like to have really hard conversations with people who are entering the twilight of their career. And often the last person Mm -hmm. to recognize that they're entering the twilight of their career is the person. (laughs) So they have to reach a point where they understand, okay, I understand my best days were behind me, but I also know that I'm now reaching a point where I don't have confidence I can do the job, so I should voluntarily step away. That is one of the hardest and most delicate conversations you can have with somebody who's retiring from, say, being an insurance agent, much less all the pride and all of the power that comes along with the presidency of the United States of America. And what's even more difficult, though, is that a lot of Democrats who might be willing to have that conversation are thinking there's not a plan B that's better. Right. There's nobody that we have that would be more likely to beat Donald Trump. So it kind of feels we're on this glide path is that nobody wants to have that conversation, but also they're not sure they want it because they don't necessarily think that Kamala Harris is more electable. And once you get past her, 
who are we talking about? You know, Gavin Newsom. So they, they don't really have a plan B, do they, David? Gavin Newsom has a plan B. <laughs> Like, yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, he's been running his little shadow campaign for a while where he could like just jump yeah. right in. I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's out there. He's warming up in the bullpen. He's Mariano Rivera waiting for the music. But here's the thing is you hit the nail on the head and that the alternative, at least in the short term to Biden, is actually kind of Democratic Party chaos because you would have Kamala jumping in. Huge arguments about her, just huge arguments. She is not incredibly popular, even with Democrats. So nobody would clear the field for her. Gavin Newsom would probably come in. You'd have governors of Michigan, maybe Colorado come in. You would have a very compressed, super intense primary while the Republicans will have already picked their man are just sort of watching the Democrats consume each other. And that's very dangerous. Look, primary challenges when your party isn't the incumbent or primaries fought over when your party is the incumbent tend to weaken the incumbent party. And yeah, and do. so it's just a giant problem. And the way through, Charlie, there is a way through. I saw Dan Pfeiffer say this. It's Biden's got to get out there. He's got to say yes to the Super Bowl interview. He's got to get out there. And here's the thing that I would ask listeners who are mad at us about talking about this. In your heart of hearts, when you hear Biden's got to get out there, are you encouraged or worried? And I would bet you a lot of folks, when I say Biden's got to get out there and he's got to nail these interviews and he's got to nail these speeches and appearances, a lot of folks who are actually mad at us for talking about this would be very worried about that approach. And my question to you is, if you're worried about the approach, don't be mad at the messenger. <laughs> Don't be mad at the messenger. This is a serious issue. Well, since this is my last Bulwark podcast, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the trajectory of conservatism and, and the Never Trump movement. And you wrote a piece a few weeks ago, I've lost track of time here, that Never Trumpers never had a chance. Yeah. And I keep going back over that saying, you know, what if this would have happened? What if so-and-so would have taken a stand? I, I asked the question in a conversation I had with Mona Charon, you know, the Never Trump movement you know, has been a success in many ways in creating, you know, cross-partisan alliances. And Donald Trump is not the president right now. But in terms of its ability to influence the Republican Party, I don't think there's any question that it turned out to be a lot worse after the 2016 election. So give me your take on that. Was there any world in which never Trump was going to succeed in rescuing the Republican Party after 2016? No, 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 Charlie. So really, this is, yeah. So this is one thing mm. that I think there should be greater awareness of this. And that is, if you're talking about politics where, let's say you lost by five points, three points, one point, it's very legitimate. Uh, five points might be on the outer bounds, but if it was a close race, it is very legitimate to sit there and say, what could we have done differently? Look, if if you had the 2016 race, Hillary and Trump, there are 17 different things that you and I could identify that if they swung this way or that way, the election could have come out differently. That is not the case when you're never greater than within 25 or 30 points. <laughs> like, what is the tactic that closes the 30-point gap, right? You know, look, I thought Ron DeSantis ran a terrible campaign, but 
all of these DeSantis postmortems in a way I think are misleading people because they're saying, well, if he had just tweaked this or tweaked that, he could have won. No, if he tweaked this or tweaked that, he could have lost by 20 points instead of 40 or 25 points instead of 35. There was never a huge constituency in the GOP for the never Trump message. Never. Now, it might have been that there was a constituency earlier in 2015 for rejecting Trump, but never for never Trump, never for saying he is out of bounds. That argument, we were never going to win in hindsight. Well, especially when that meant that you needed to support Democrats. And I think that people sometimes underestimate how difficult it is in Republican conservative circles to say, not only do you reject Trumpism, but now you must affirmatively vote for somebody who you've opposed your entire career. I mean, on paper, right? I mean, you and I have done it, we've done it, but I don't think it's shocking that that's been difficult to scale that up, that people's partisan tribal loyalties are just, you know, much stickier than I think people sometimes acknowledge. Yes, yes, 100%. And that's why, you know, the Republican voters against Trump strategy was so smart to say, we're not asking you to vote for Biden. We're not asking you to cross the aisle to vote for Biden. We're just asking you not to vote for Donald Trump. You know, for Democratic, my Democratic friends who say, how dare you be so partisan that you would never cross the aisle to vote for a Democrat? I say to them in response, under what circumstances would you vote for a pro-life Republican? Mm-hmm. And the folks who are honest with themselves say, oh, huh, I'm not sure when I would vote for a pro-life Republican. So, you know, there's a need for a measure of humility on this when we're scolding people for not crossing partisan lines that we've never had to cross ourselves and don't know if we would, right? So it was going to be a challenge to get people to cross the partisan lines for sure. I expected that. What I did not expect was the deep, deep, intense loyalty for Donald Trump against all other Republicans, including Republicans who were demonstrably more conservative and demonstrably had higher character. No, and I think that that's, uh, that has played out really quite dramatically. Okay, so in the, in the few minutes that we have left, I want to strike out a little bit of a personal note because, David, I I have thought many times over the last uh, several months that I wanted to reach out to you for advice and counsel and to go back. And by the way, for people who don't know, I mean, David and I kind of go way back. And I am still very, very grateful for when we were in Austin, Texas for the Texas Tribune Festival. I was there with my French grandson, Elliot, and you were so gracious in sitting down with him and letting him interview you. You have a special place in in our household. (laughs) But, you know, every time I thought about it, you know, things that I wanted to bring up, I try to put it in the context of... And this is this is hard for me. I and, and I think it's hard for a lot of people because I think about you and your wife Nancy all the time. Mm. And whatever problems that we are experiencing in our lives, compared to what you and Nancy are facing and the courage you're doing it. And I just, you know, f- first of all, just I want you to know that I think about you all the time. Oh. And I am moved by her courage and her optimism. And your piece that you wrote about the power of community was was really moving. And I have to admit that I, I struggle with community and how to express these things. But how are you doing? You know, Charlie, in the piece 
that I wrote, I shared this Swedish proverb that I think is just beautiful. And it really is kind of a mission statement for friendship. And it is shared joy is double joy and shared sorrow is half sorrow. Mm. And Mm. I have never understood the truth of that more. I've always used it because I think it's a beautiful statement and it has resonated as true. But only in the last several months has it really hit home at this gut level because when we initially found out Nancy's diagnosis, and it's a, it's a very aggressive form of cancer, but she has a, a lot of hope for a good outcome. But mm-hmm. it's, it's a very scary time. And in that short period of time when we kept the diagnosis to ourselves, it was terrifying and debilitating in many ways. And then when we shared, when we began to share and people began to absolutely pour out love and concern and compassion, Mm -hmm. that is what made everything so much more bearable. And I could watch the love of others really energize Nancy, my wife. I could see it. I just say that to encourage people to reach out to those folks in your community that you know are suffering it really matters. It really matters. Even if it's just a note that says, I'm thinking about you, love you, you know, much less a concrete offer of help. All of it is valuable. All of it. And, and it's really convicted me, Charlie. I've had to look and ask myself in my life, have I been that kind of person? Because I'm so overwhelmed by the reaction mm-hmm. of others to us. It's been convicting to me, and it's made me re, sort of redouble my own commitment to be that kind of person. Well, and again, I, I think what you underlined there was just the power of community and not trying to do everything on your own. And I think that, you know, whether we're talking about this or we're talking about other, other things, you know, that community is absolutely essential to stay strong to stay spiritually connected. And uh, so I want to thank you for that piece because mm-hmm. it, it is a real challenge. And uh, tell Nancy to keep uh, putting those pictures out there because uh, it's yeah. like, just want, want a thumbs up every one of them. And David, thank you for coming on the podcast for our final podcast before we, we go dark here. Of course, uh, you know, Tim Miller is going to be here on, on Monday, but this is going to be my sign off. And I have to, I have to say that one of the great experiences of my life has been able to every single morning to get up and talk to um, the smartest, most interesting people I know, and to have these kinds of conversations. And and I think that has been a real uh, privilege and a real blessing. Uh, And I am very, very privileged to uh, have you come on this podcast and very, very grateful for all the conversations we've had over the years. And we'll keep having conversations, Charlie. We will. Thank you for your work. God bless you and your future endeavors. And as I said at the outset, I'm honored that I'm your last guest, and I truly treasure and value our friendship. And uh, I look forward to seeing what you do next and helping in any way that I can. Okay, well, we'll see you around the, around the corner. Thank you, David. And some final words as I head out the door. Look, I am extremely grateful for the opportunity that Sarah Longwell and Bill Crystal gave me when we founded The Bulwark in this extraordinary community. I mean, working alongside folks like JVL and Mona Chern, A.B. Stoddard, Will Salatin, Kathy Young, Jim Swift, Adam Kuyper, Sonny Bunch, Barry Rubin, Tim, Ben Parker, Joe Perticone. This has been one of the most rewarding professional experiences of my life. And I'm 
Really grateful for all of you for joining us in the wilderness. And a special shout out to our brilliant art director, Hannah Yost, who, who got up very early every single morning to make the Bulwark the best looking political site you're going to find. And to the very best podcast team in the business, the absolutely incomparable Katie Cooper, who prepped and produced our daily show. And to our engineer, Jason Brown, who always made us sound a lot better than we actually deserved. We could not have done that without that team. And extra special shout out to my brilliant wife, J.F. Reardon, who's taking time out from writing her novels, writing her books of essays, her children's books about dogs, to copy edit morning shots every single morning. And again, to the entire Bulwark community, to all of the brave contrarian conservatives, the never-Trumpers, the people who've been willing to reach across the aisle, a reminder, you are not the crazy ones. And that's it for me. Don't stop. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.